And then we've hit into this open creek line and got hammered by a machine gun and then just made our way over to a flank to sort of get out of that killing ground. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery. Ten minutes later, I'm Paul Kale is a veteran of the 2nd Commando Regiment and a black belt in eight different styles of martial arts. He has been involved with the Australian Army for 30 years, either as a soldier or a preferred contractor. As a commando, he was deployed five times on combat tours to Afghanistan and Iraq. Paul's hand-to-hand combat experiences in theatres of war and those of his fellow commandos have guided his development of the kinetic fighting system. I had the pleasure of speaking with him over Zoom about his military service and martial arts career. Paul Kale, welcome to Life on the Line. Thank you, Alex. Pleasure to be here. Let's start with your childhood, Paul, and what first brought you to the martial arts? For me, it was being bullied at school, which I think is, I don't know how many people join martial arts because of those reasons, but I watched a little Asian man beat up multiple opponents. His name was Bruce Lee, and I thought, well, if he could do that, then uh, that's that's the go for me. And then I had some friends as children who did one of the only martial arts in our area, which was uh, Taekwondo, and that's how I first got involved. One of the reasons I started karate when I was 13 or 14 was along similar lines, so I can relate to that. Yeah, I've met a lot of people, that's the reason for starting. But obviously, if you're learning martial arts or a good martial art, it it shouldn't be a reason for uh, continuing your training. That should be taken care of fairly quickly. No, that gets filtered out quickly and becomes about something more Looking back, how do you feel studying martial arts affected your personality growing up? Because like you say, if it goes beyond the learn how to fight basic mentality, I've found it could be a real maturing experience. When I was young, my parents moved often. So I switched schools often. So I was a fairly isolated child. I sort of kept to myself. So martial arts was the thing that was my anchor and it was the thing that I sort of held on to, to to learn about the world, which is probably why I'm so, I guess, serious about my martial arts thinking, because it's from such a young age, it was such a serious anchor for me. I don't take myself seriously, but I take martial arts seriously. So and it's an interesting question asking it that way, because now I'm, I'm thinking back and I realize that my perception of martial arts is probably I have a bias, I guess, towards a certain way of thinking because of the influence when I was young. But it's done well for me through my life. A great influence, to answer your question. It was a a very, very strong influence. And it got me through some very difficult times. And it still does today. So, you know, coronavirus, you can't do your jujitsu with people. So, you know, I'm out the back practicing carters and so on. You know, there's always something that you can lean on with martial arts and delve into. I also feel there's a bit of a natural lead in there for the army for you, that it shows the reward of work ethic over, say, ability, and it's about consistency, routine, that discipline, and 
in a good dojo or a good martial arts school, there's that sense of brotherhood and common purpose and understanding. Did you find that sort of segue between starting martial arts when you were younger and once you joined up and got into the forces? Mm, it, it was the reason I joined the army. So uh, I wanted to learn about modern warfare. I was learning all about this sort of ancient Asian Japanese predominantly. I mean, I started with Taekwondo, which is Korean, but a lot of my what I read about and was interested in was Japanese. And within a few years, I'd started some Japanese martial arts like uh, Judo, Aikido and Karate. So that's been, I guess, my strongest influence. When I did join the army, I was lucky I joined in a period of time where Australia wasn't spending a lot of money on its army. The army didn't have a lot of toys to play with. What it did have was good people and a lot of people that had come out of the Vietnam era as warrant officers and and, uh, sergeants and battalion commanders and so on. Because of their experiences and so on, I think the army back then spent a lot of time in developing people because the only asset that really had was people. Our equipment was all Vietnam era. So, you know, you're talking late 80s and we're still using SLRs and Huey helicopters and we're in greens. We look like we've just stepped out of Vietnam. What I found is uh, the leadership and not having the modern technology of today. I think people would struggle putting a work party together today because they'll ring the guys 15 times on their phones to add more information or something. Back then, you actually had to give orders for everything you did and you had to have RV points and, you know, you literally had to work through your SMEAC just to get a work party up and going and not lose your soldiers because, you know, there was no way to contact them. So very, very good time for me when I first joined the army and I was uh, just incredibly committed to it. It was also, I didn't do well at school. The army was the first time where I excelled. Martial arts actually was the first time where I felt like I could achieve something with the belt system and things like that. And then the army did the same thing for me and uh, I loved it. That's interesting in that you would have been learning, like you said, from Vietnam era instructors, Vietnam era equipment, probably doing a lot of jungle training with that Vietnam influence, but also you're joining up in the long peace period as well. We're not even starting our peacekeeping deployments to Somalia and such, let alone any active war service. So did you join with any aspirations on, I want to be able to deploy and do this or that, or because there just wasn't much happening for us at that time? No, it was, uh, the Cold War was still going. So the Soviet Union was the, the great nemesis. And uh, yeah, there wasn't much happening. I think at that period we would have seen it would have been the Soviet Union was in Afghanistan, ironically. I think when the Falklands flared up earlier in the decade, that made me realise that Britain didn't expect to be fighting a war and it sort of just happened. And and then we had uh, Fiji became a bit of a thing in 1987. But you did feel like you were training and nothing was going to happen. But again, I got out, uh, I was in one area and I got out just before Somalia kicked off. So you missed out on that deployment? So I felt like I missed out. I thought, well, that's it. I've, I've missed the boat. Over time, no, that wasn't to be the case. Be careful what you wish for. What's your career progression from there? Yeah. So what happened for me was I actually, I got out of the army. It was not a good time to get out, but I was naive to the recession that we had to have. So 1987, the recession kicked off. Didn't notice it being in the army, but I did notice it when I did get out. So it was a few years of downturn. So I went to join the Victorian Police Force. I went back to Victoria. I'm originally from Victoria. They had closed the police academy, which I won the first times for a long time. Just didn't have the money to uh, put new police through. So got back into martial arts. I always kept going with martial arts. But I decided that I'd go to Japan 
and live in Japan and train at the Oceankan full-time in Shinjuku in Tokyo. And I did that until my money ran out. I didn't teach English or anything like that while I was there. I just wanted to train. So I did that. And when I came back, I thought I'd join the Army Reserve. Now, the Army Reserve back then was a very different thing to what it is today. The reservists would do two weeks and that's a recruit course and they'd do two weeks for an IT course. Whereas a regular army, we did 12 weeks for our recruit course and we did 12 weeks for our IT. So it was a huge difference between full-time soldiers and, and reservists in exposure and experience. And that was obviously changed through the 90s. So I thought I'd join the reserve, which I did. And then I heard about uh, a platoon out where I was towards Dandenong of commandos starting. So the uh, second commando company decided to put a platoon out towards the eastern suburbs because they had the biggest recruiting intake for the army in Victoria. And so that's how I got involved. And I went there and loved it. And I ended up becoming a uh, commando through the 1st Commando Regiment. I was asked about for RAR. So we did a lot of things to raise commando capability, a regular commando capability. Originally, the concept was to raise a third company within the 1st Commando Regiment, but it just didn't have the manning. And so the way they worked it out was to uh, split one of the battalions and uh, when they split all the battalions, so the one in uh, two battalions were linked. They were linked with another battalion. So when I joined, second battalion was linked to the fourth. So you had two, four RAR in Townsville and one RAR. Three and uh, five, six were together, eight, nine and six RAR. So you had a sort of this linkage. They delinked the battalions. So two RAR stayed in um, Townsville and four RAR ended up in Holsworthy, and they wanted to raise the commando capability through four RAR. Now, I wanted to go to SASR at that stage. I, you know, I thought, well, my experience of commandos was part-time, and I had grown up in the Army knowing of SASR. They were the established game in town. They were the established, yeah, full-time group in town. That was how I was thinking, but life sort of went down a few different paths and my wife decided at the time to join the Victorian Police Force and she got stationed to a country station. So we ended up on the border of New South Wales. And, you know, she decided to have a career in the police force. So I had already been in the army. So the answer to that was you're going to have to stay in a part-time capacity with the Army because if you go to SASR, you're going to end up in Perth and I have to leave the Victorian Police Force. So that was only fair. As time went on, we ended up, after many, many years, we ended up separating. I was living in Swan Hill in Victoria and I had a big martial arts school there at that stage. And I was up there when 9-11 happened and that sort of drew me into thinking about full-time service. And so I ended up going back in full-time or working full-time for the Army, for commandos. In 2006, I became a sergeant and I didn't have the experience of the regular guys back then, except for in a couple of specialist areas. One of them was unarmed combat. So I was asked to be a subject matter expert and be posted to Canberra. But when I rejoined the Army, Schema basically said they had a critical trade shortage for commando sergeants at 4RR. So I was meant to be going to Canberra. I was there for a day and I went to Holsworthy. You definitely lucked out on that. <laughs> Look, I was happy. It was a steep, steep learning curve. And I had to jump through all the hoops that the regular guys did. In actual fact, I've not said this to anyone, but mostly when reservists, reserve commandos went to full-time service, if they were taken on, they would be demoted. So sergeants would become lance corporals and so on. And I was the first to go on promotion to 4RR. And it's never happened since. So 
you know, I guess that's one little, if that's something to be proud of, that was my little moment, I guess. But um, it is definitely quite impressive because by 2006, they're established by this point, have been in this game for a while and you're coming in, you're doing, I imagine, the reinforcement cycle and all the training and you're going in at that senior NCO level. It was difficult because I was a sergeant, but, um, you know, I just had to suck it up and do what you had to do and pass the courses that you had to pass. And because I was a sergeant, I was doing the course and the follow-on course and then I'd be back learning my supervisor skills so i'd have to learn how to instruct the course so it was huge so i almost did twice as many courses it was hectic i didn't have any sort of uh, life really just the job and you expect that in special forces did you have any resistance or jealousy I yep. suppose? all of the above I had heaps of people that hated me just because I was a ex-choco. They didn't know I was ex-regular. And that's the reason I guess Schema took that as being, a, well, he's a corporal in the regular army. He became a commando. You know, I wasn't a reservist from the start, but people didn't know that. Also, if you make a mistake in performance, then, you know, you might have two mistakes that you make and then you're kicked off. So if I made a mistake, oh, look, told you so, he's not capable. it would be like, yeah, but everyone gets to make two mistakes, you know. There was always that pressure. I accepted it because, first of all, I'd been bullied all my life at school. So being bullied in the army, and I was bullied. It's as simple as that. I didn't mind. Like, I, I did mind, but I knew how to take it. Secondly, I kind of thought to myself through my own regular army experience that I would probably do the same thing. They hold what they do dearly, and they're committed to it, and they don't want to see someone just walk in and be given a position. So I had to keep proving myself. And what I found is that every time someone worked with me or I instructed on a course or instructed soldiers or I did whatever I did, I would win most people over. And by the end, I had no issues. By the end, I was doing a huge amount of work. It'd be like, well, if you need that done, give to JJ, run this, run that. And I'd just be going from one course to the other or deployment from one deployment to another. Speaking of deployments, how long after joining the commandos is it until you learn that you're going to Afghanistan? Six months. So I got the four RIR and I had my first trip to Afghanistan within six months. So all your life at this point, you've been testing yourself in the martial arts scene by fighting in tournaments, gradings, and always seeing how far you can upskill and also seeing how many different styles you can learn and train in. You've been upskilling in the military. Oh, sorry, sorry about that. With the different styles, it, I wasn't deliberately cross-training. I've spoken to people about this before. You literally did cross-training right through the 80s. You know, it was unheard of. All I wanted to do was martial arts. There was no full-time centers like you see today. So it was all clubs. And clubs train twice a week, but there's seven days in a week. So if one club was doing Monday and uh, Thursday, well, Monday and Wednesday, I was looking for a Tuesday and Thursday club. And I knew enough to know, hey, judo's throwing, I'm doing goju-ru or something. I don't want to learn striking and another form of striking because it'll confuse me. So I'll learn throwing something different. So that's what, how that happened. So it was really just because I wanted to train all the time that I ended up doing different martial arts. And the reason I ended up with such a diverse range of different martial arts is I ended up joining the army and got posted. So Aikido, I started with Aikikai, ended up in Townsville and found a Yoshinkan dojo. I didn't even know what Yoshinkan Aikido was. And then I ended up in Japan training in Yoshinkan. And it was just like that. And then when I came back, it's like, oh, well, I'm interested to see, understand more about Tamiki or sport Aikido where they compete and they try to resist and so on. And that's the follow-up of different martial arts became understanding about a style that I got involved with. And then, okay, now I want to pick some styles to 
greater understand that particular martial art and so on. You're just naturally feeling a hunger for more training and filling skills, and then that led you down that path. Yep. As you spent earlier years of your life upskilling in the martial arts and still working on that, you've been upskilling quite heavily in the military, as you've just described, in a rather frantic pace. And now you're finally deploying and can test yourself in that theater. Can you share with me one of your more memorable firsts from that first Afghanistan deployment, whether it's first impressions of the country upon landing or your first night, first week, first operation? first contact first impressions was sitting on the plane and just realizing that i'm deploying for my first time and just flying to afghanistan and thinking back to a, an old australian vietnam movie called the odd angry shot with graham kennedy and a bunch of great australian actors and just thinking how they flying over to uh, vietnam with Qantas and the beer in their hand we had no beer that was a bit disappointing but yeah it was a dry flight, but just the fact that we're just sort of sitting there in a commercial style flight, heading off to war. And it just made me think of the, you know, when I used to watch, when I watched that movie when I was young. For Afghanistan itself, well, we prepped in Kuwait to enter Afghanistan. So back then, all our operations, our forward base was in Kuwait, and we would deploy into Iraq or Afghanistan via Kuwait. And we also had AMAB in the UAE. So you'd punch forward to AMAB and, and then go into Afghanistan. And then that was changed. So as Iraq sort of started to die down, our operations out of Kuwait stopped, and then that was pushed to the UAE and into Afghanistan from the UAE. That was interesting too, because here we are, we hit Kuwait and, you know, all the US military, all that side of it was just amazing just to see how big that sort of operation is. Then into Afghanistan, it was just, you know, I could see why people did backpacking through Afghanistan in the 70s. Like it was an amazing country, absolutely beautiful and just so unique, just caught in time. It's just caught in a moment in time. The other thing was the lack of oxygen, just the altitude that you're at and going for a run and just, you know, really suffering out and felt dealing with the lack of air. Yeah. And then again, being on base, getting the feel of the base and the Dutch were there at that stage. So we had the Dutch and then later on the Americans came in and replaced the Dutch and then just, yeah, different coalition forces. So it just didn't stop. There was just, there was no end to the, what there was to see and take on board. And then your first patrol outside the wire. And just seeing the people and you've been trained, but, you know, you talk about experience with just what your mind goes through, you know, you're thinking, well, when do the shots come? Like, it's going to happen as we're heading somewhere. It's going to just those sort of things. So, and then just taking in, taking in the space, like taking in uh, Terrancout and the roads and the dress and the look of the place. You know, it was pretty amazing. Just being outside on the wire on a patrol, I also imagine you're taking in all this for the first time with this awe, really, as you're describing it there. But then you also have the added responsibility that you're a sergeant. So you're having to command commandos in this high pressure environment, in this sometimes kinetic environment. And that must add an extra weight to your shoulders. Yeah, well, my first job going outside the wire was actually... Uh, I was one of the first liaison commanders of the uh, Afghan coalition partner force. So we had just taken on a coalition partner force. Uh, we tried working with the Afghan police to start with, and that was very difficult, to say the least, with desertions and different things happening out in the field. I had great help from the US. The, you know, the US would just do anything they could to help you. You know, if you wanted AK rifles, AK-47s or whatever, you'd go speak to so-and-so and he'd send you somewhere else and, hey, there you go, mate. And it's just, they're just very helpful. 
in any way they could, but it was a real steep learning curve again. So that was the first thing I went out with. And then we switched to Afghan army and they were really good guys from up north. I'd been trying to learn Pashtun and they all want to speak Dari. So they, you know, it was like start learning again because they didn't want to use Pashtun language. It was an interesting thing. So you talk about those early days when I was in the army, the Vietnam era. One thing I learned was how to use a whistle. So instead of gun go, rifle go, scouts go, a whistle blast. Now, I didn't have comms with my Afghan soldiers. So we did one uh, assault where I literally used a whistle. And I taught them that one whistle blast would be the left flank and two would be the right flank. Three whistle blasts come back to me. (laughs) Old skill and there it is, used it in Afghanistan. There's an infamous incident in 2007 that proves to be a turning point in your approach to close quarter fighting. You and other commandos made entry on some compounds where Taliban leadership was, and the situation quickly descended to -to hand-to-hand combat. You ended up strangling a Taliban soldier who turned out to be the second in command of the region. Martial arts training in the civilian world trains practitioners to submit or tap out where waiting for that guy to tap you on the leg or shoulder or the mat to say, yep, done. But you saw firsthand that day that when you're against someone fighting for their life, they don't tap out. An armbar might result in a broken arm, but they'll keep going. This encounter led you to implementing changes in the close quarter fighting program for you and fellow commandos, and you went on to co-found the 2nd Commando Regiment Integrated Combat Center. And my question to you then is, what other incidents in your deployments to Afghanistan or other parts of your career have delivered similar key lessons in shaping your view on combat mindset and that skills training? That one, it had the greatest effect for the reasons that you said, but also close combat. So close combat with firearms, you're understanding so much about it, this combat mindset and fighting and dealing with fears and things that are quite natural in human responses and understanding how training affects that, how training keeps you focused and moving forward. Right from the time when I turned up, to originally 4RAR, which later became the 2nd Commando Regiment. I was involved right from the start. The first thing they did is, hey, you're doing your ACQB course or your CQB course. And um, by the way, apparently you're you're sent to as an SME for the Army's military self-defense. So what you can do while you're doing that is rewrite the close quarter fighting course because we don't like it. And you can rewrite that and then teach that in the morning. Then we teach you the shooting and so. Again, that was an example of, oh, you're doing the course, but you're a sergeant as well, so you can do this. So it made sense to link the close quarter fighting as closely to close quarter battle. When the difference is one's with auxiliary weapons and uh, using your body as a weapon, and the other one is your primary and secondary weapons. But it makes total sense to link the two together and to use team tactics and so forth. It was that experience in Afghanistan that made me realize that I felt I wasn't prepared with a lifetime of martial arts experience for a hand-to-hand encounter. So what are we doing with a week of training? Like we're kidding ourselves. I had gone through that and that experience made me realize we have to reassess the way we train people and we have to empower them. So when the stimuli is there, they just automatically fall into a mode. And I guess what informed me a lot about that was the dog training that we did and you know these dogs we didn't have conversation with them we didn't explain stuff to them we had to show them and create an instinctive behavior i started working closely with the trainers to sort of understand what they were doing and seeing whether where we could link these sort of stimulus response effects 
rather than here's the technique and the traditional way of stuff where you can put people under pressure and pressure test skills and get a reaction that people can stop and after they've been successful with their response, they can sit back and deal with the, the effect later rather than having self-doubt and uh, not reacting fast enough to close quarter encounter. So it just opened up a whole bunch of different ways of thinking about close quarter fighting. We started doing a lot of shooting drills because there's a lot of things you can do in country, a lot less restrictions in what you can work with. And you've got a huge access to ammunition and so forth. You're at war, basically. So there's a lot of things that we could work on. If we weren't outside doing patrols and that, we were training and trying different things and pushing the envelope in bringing back the experiences we were having and how to enhance on them. As you settle into that first deployment, say, how do you feel your mindset changes? Does it start to become normalized for you, the experiences you're going through? No, because there's enough abnormal things to happen that happen all the time that keep damaging any sense of normality you're trying to create. So naturally, as humans, we like to have a little bit of, uh, to normalize certain things, you know, like I like to get up and have, uh, you know, started make my coffee. We like structure. Yeah, structure, get a little bit of cereal, sit down and try and watch the Australian news or something, just feel like I'm somewhere else for a little bit. But there's always something that damages that. For me, it was that first trip, we hadn't had an Australian killed in Afghanistan since uh, Russell. We went out and Pierce was killed, who was uh, uh, armoured guy or cav guy so i apologize if i haven't quite got it he was cav yep he was killed in a lab so he would be cav yeah he was killed and we heard the explosion they were basically moving down a road we were amongst compounds doing what we're doing and you know we heard an explosion and he was killed and then we had an operation where this large operation went out and matt lock who was an sas sergeant he was killed during that. Gunned down in the Chora Valley. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, we went out, go out again, an Australian soldier killed. And, you know, we went over to the task force guys across the fence to say, hey, you know, sorry for your loss and have a chat to them and so on. And then we go out and then one of our guys are killed. Matt was a great guy, but it's the other regiment. So it's not as close to home, but it's getting closer. And then Luke Worsley was killed, one of our own. Each was a shock and each got closer and closer to someone that you're sort of intimately working with. You just don't get a time to sort of think, is there any normal in this? After that trip, they said, hey, is anyone wanting to stay back and and, uh, extend the trip and stay over the winter period and carry on? And I said, yeah, I'll stay. So that was probably a little bit too long. I was lucky, you know, that we were reorganized. And at that stage, I became a team commander, took over a team. And I had Cam Bid as my 2IC in my team, you know, had the ex- amazing experiences. And that is where it was during that period of, in winter where I ended up in the compound where we ended up in the hand-to-hand combat. So if I hadn't stayed for the extension, that probably wouldn't have happened to me. At the time, I was, would have been happy if it hadn't happened to me. But now I appreciate the experience. Looking back, which is more taxing on you as this time rolls on in this deployment? Is it getting into a situation like the hand-to-hand incident or a contact where things feel a bit out of control? Or is it that more gradual impact or erosion of morale as you start to lose Aussies over there? Yeah, we start to lose a lot of people. For our slash two commando, we had the most amount of casualties, killed and wounded. The other thing too is you, people probably don't understand that they go, well, they look at the rate of you know, how many people have been killed 
And it's very similar to Vietnam in the fact that Vietnam had a lower rate than Korea and so on. But it's because of that golden hour. It's because of the helicopters and the ability to get wounded people into hospitals and the miracle of modern medicine and our medics. So we still had a high rate of people losing their legs, being shot, wounded, but our emergency evacuation uh, procedures and the ability of our medics is amazing, absolutely amazing. And so those guys would survive, whereas if they were in World War II Korea, they would, wouldn't have survived. So the carnage is still there, if that makes sense. The amount of people wounded, the amount of people suffering is still there. It's just they survived it. It was interesting because our new compound was built at 2nd Commando Regiment. And it's like, hey, you know, and I was with someone and they're looking and they're seeing all these disabled car spaces along the front of the unit. You know, what if they built disabled car spaces for a, an organisation that's special forces, all these big guys, and, you know, that's for the guys missing legs and stuff. We try to keep them employed if we can. We try to have them working in other areas. There was no unit back in the day when I joined that we had disabled car spaces like that. You just don't even think about it. And I'm sure the Vietnam guys, I don't know if they tried to keep them in the army or whether they were just discharged or wounded. It'd be interesting to find out. But, you know, it's just a very interesting thing. And you just hear the silence in, in when people are told that. And they're just like, oh, okay. For me, the hardest thing is I went into a training scenario. So one after my last deployment, I was asked to stay at the unit and just keep driving the capability of close combat forward. And so I sort of ended up in a cult, a special sort of training capability within two commando. I was looking after a couple of things. I was looking after the armed response protection teams, which is the bodyguard style work, and also the close quarter fighting development, capability development, and the integrated combat center. I think the biggest thing that knocked me around was just because I had stopped fighting, I was sort of on my way out, friends were still getting killed. You realize, oh, hang on, just because I've stopped, I'm not there, my friends are still getting killed. And then you feel very guilty that you're not there with them. I think that was the one and only the thing that affected me the most. The Battle of Zabat Calais is a significant engagement you're a part of. The play-by-play is retold very well in great detail in Chris Masters' book, No Frontline. So rather than spend an hour getting a full recap of that battle, can you give me a general picture, general overview of what occurred and share some of your impressions or distinct memories from that day? Sabat Clay was, it wasn't meant to be a battle. It was just meant to be a go up and pick up a person of interest. We were meant to do another job, and I can't remember what it was. And we were on the line ready and we had a very good intelligence officer who just was just tracking a lot of different things. And you get a few of these guys that just love their work. And we got a ping on it on someone that he'd been tracking. And he just felt that the fact that we didn't launch on this other job, it would be really worthwhile making, making the go on this guy. So we did. We moved on it. And because of uh, the altitude, we had to sort of go light with assaulters. So we had four helicopters and, you know, I, I had basically, I was a, platoon sergeant during that situation uh, would have been 2010. I think we had three teams, three commando teams, and that was it. And we had the platoon headquarters and I had the, the other half of the platoon headquarters. What happened is we came in to get this individual and one of the helicopters couldn't land in, in the actual primary uh, landing spot and had to sort of jump forward to a secondary spot and just landed in a hornet's nest. So it turned out that there was these um, Afghan commissioners from Pakistan who controlled basically the Taliban. 
they were doing this tour and we'd watch these guys pop up at all these intelligent briefs. These guys are in town and they're doing this. And we, and you just see, you just know that every coalition, like 22 SAS, SB, CAGS, SEAL, everyone's chasing these guys, right? And uh, you just go, okay. <laughs> you just think, yeah, no worries. And funnily enough, by accident, we landed on. And uh, so they had all their PSDs with them, their protection parties, and they had all the machine guns that they were using to hand out. So they brought equipment with them to sort of be passing on to the different leadership. So they had no shortage of, of weapon systems and things like that. And we heard that first helicopter over the headsets that they were in contact. And you're thinking, no worries. Well, when we hit the ground, this is where we are in relation to their secondary landing spot. So we'll be able to move this way. And the next helo would come in and they were in contact. Okay, both of them are in contact. So when we hit the ground, we need to, and then we'd land and we'd already taken wounded. And I was a platoon sergeant and, you know, there's no casualty collection point. You guys are all fighting. So guess what? The collection point, needs to grow legs and get to the casualty. So I grabbed my medic, I grabbed my SIG. We're very lucky. A lot of the support guys were very qualified. So that sort of added to the sort of kicking power that we had. And we just punched forward and got to the first wounded. And so for me, it was really all about getting to wounded. So I got to the first wounded guy who had been shot in the arm and we just rewrapped his arm on the move. So the platoon commander was calling in a helo. And we're talking about this is uh, call sign No Mercy, which is 101st Airborne uh, helicopters for 101st Airborne. They're not special forces helos. They're, they're move people, drop them off. You know, they're under fire. And we're saying, hey, you need to come in. And why the Apaches are doing gun runs and we're in fighting and doing our piece. Come in under fire to get our wounded out because there's not enough of us on the ground. I think there's 14 commandos or something like that. I have to read Chris Master's book to find out what the number was. But there, there's not enough on the ground for us to deal with our wounded and keep fighting. And we had no idea the numbers we're dealing with. You know, we just had machine guns everywhere fighting. And it was a hectic, hectic time. I mean, one of our guys got put up for Victoria Cross, he ended up with a star of gallantry, which is the one under, but I think it was five gallantry awards that day. Highest amount of gallantry awards in, in, in one single. Engagement since Vietnam. Yeah, Bram Connolly told me the same thing. Yeah, and then there were some other awards that came out of it as well. Good on the guys. So Bram's giving you the, the lowdown. So Bram would have had a different experience in that he was the platoon commander on the day. And so, you know, I was with Bram initially, and I'm just like, as soon as that first wounded came up, like, oh, I had to fight my way to Bram first. So we're on another side, and I dropped a couple of my snipers off who took some an elevated position so they get some fire on guys. And that was a gutsy move by them because, you know, off you go, two guys, just get to the position and see what you can see and start shooting it because we don't have a lot of support. And then we're just fighting our way over. I think we sort of cracked into a compound where some shooting was coming from. And myself, the intelligence guy and, uh, you know, the medic and the SIG, you know, we're just doing our little piece. Get over, mayhem. So you try and keep the chatter down. So I just come over and let Bram know I'm making my way to him. That's it. Wounded's on. And then there's another wounded. almost, I think, three, almost very, within 15 minutes or so. So that was it. I was gone. I said, Bram, I'm on the move. And grabbed the medic and we're, we're gone. Got to the first wounded guy. And Bram had called in a helicopter. So he was just like, get to that helicopter however you can. So we just got him up to it, threw him on it, and then just made our way to the next guy, which was one of the team commanders who had been shot in the head. 
And then we hit into this open creek line and got hammered by a machine gun and then just made our way over to a flank to sort of get out of that killing ground. And then came across these bodies, all these bodies of where one of the teams had gone through where they were hit and there's just bodies everywhere. It was amazing. And they're just like, you know, you could see they're just in shock, you know, like they just had a massive fight. It's like, no worries. Hey, guys, say a few things to them. I'll come back to you. I've got to get over to this team over here. And um, it was just like that. It was just like a pinball machine. That's probably a good way. I just get from that end of the pinball machine and go down there and bounce as you're going along and see what happens. And hopefully you don't tilt the game. From the listener's point of view, I've edited out some of your coughs, but we've had a couple of coughing spells while we've been chatting and you blamed it on the uh, shit pit over in Afghanistan. Did you pick up any other injuries while on deployment? I ended up with some injuries and I ended up down the track having to pay for it. So I ended up with two shoulder reconstructions and having my biceps reattached. On my last deployment, I broke my knee. I kept that hidden. Now, how do you keep it hidden? You have a good doctor and you have a good physio. I just go there every day and the doc would just put a needle into the puffed up blowing knee, suck the fluid out, and then the uh, physio would just have my muscles bouncing around. And also a good platoon commander who knew that, hey, my knee's busted. And I didn't want to go back to Australia. I'm like, I'm not going back to Australia. Having stayed and done the whole trip with a broken knee just meant that it was going to be well and truly wrecked. Then I went to the hospital at the end of the trip. Hey, I've hurt my knee. Oh, and then the, whoever it was, they were foreigners and they had a lovely accent. Yeah, you've got a broken knee. I'm like, oh, okay. It happened this morning, I swear. Bad, yeah, that's, that's bad luck. Good luck till at the end of the trip. <laughs> so they took an x-ray and that and there's some bone floating around and stuff like that. It's still in there. Like I haven't had an operation on it. And uh, the doc just basically said, look, does it hurt you too much to walk around and so forth? And I'm like, no, it doesn't really hurt. Just occasionally what happens is um, my knee sort of locks out. And they just said, look, if we operate on it, it's not going to be as good as it is now. So just keep going. And when it's no good, that's it. But I can't run. What happens is anything like running, just my knee just blows up into a balloon. So I just, I do walks and, but I can wrestle. My attitude is if I can wrestle, same as my shoulders. I, you know, I used to be a fairly big, strong guy, but I had to learn to do jujitsu the way little people do jujitsu and realize, Hey, if people want you to go there, that's where you're going and you've got to hold them and use your legs. And it's been an incredible experience. So even these injuries, I feel very fortunate that if I can roll, and train, then I'm happy. You know, if I can't go for a run, I can't go for a run. But rather than limiting you, it's just forced you to adapt and find new ways of doing what you want to do. Yeah. And it makes you realize that, you know, the same as combat, like you've got to understand that you're not going to be, unlike the UFC or any combat sport, you're not going to be in your best condition. And even before you're wounded in a fight, I'll give you an example, that winter time in 2007 and eight, where we had the hand-to-hand experience, We'd walk 5Ks onto target in the middle of an Afghan winter. So that's below freezing. You could only stop on target for up to an hour because you would just literally start freezing with the outer cordon and, and so on. And we were in open vehicles. So we got there in open vehicles and we'd have to take layers of clothes off so we could walk but not take too much off so we could be on target. And we walked for a river, like a river in minus 20 or whatever it was. It was cold. The water was freezing on your legs, like crystallizing on the legs as you're walking along. So you're not at 100% when you enter that battle right from the get-go. 
So this is the thing. What you're doing has to work when you're depleted. And look at self-defense. You're walking along and the first thing you know is someone's probably belted you in the head or you've been hit by something or whatever. And you have to recover from this complete loss of initiative and regain the initiative, basically like an ambush. And so tactically speaking, a lot of people do not understand how to get the best out of their training for self-defense. What year was your final deployment to Afghanistan? 2010. I was there every year from 7, seven 8, 9, 10. I want to move on to some general reflective questions in a moment and talk more about the martial arts work you're doing today. But before we look to your transition out of active service, I think I'd be remiss not to acknowledge the other impressive range of stuff that you do in your career, running commander selection courses, training foreign special forces units, bodyguarding the prime minister. Just part of the job. <laughs> Just part of the job? Which of our many recent prime ministers were you assigned to? I took Julia Gillard to Iraq and Afghanistan. Malcolm Turnbull, I was in Afghanistan with him. He would be the most recent. And I met uh, Kevin Rudd in 2007 when um, I deployed. It turned out every time I deployed, I felt like we got a new prime minister. So that was a time where it's like, if you go, be careful, if you go overseas, you're going to come back to a new prime minister. Luckily, one of those times was when... Uh, Kevin Rudd turned up in 07 after he won the election and, hi, everyone, I'm Kevin Rudd. We didn't even know who he was. I could was thinking, okay, no worries. Are we staying in Afghanistan? What's, what's happening now? But, yeah, interesting times. Let's go back to what you touched on earlier about when you were no longer deploying but you felt the weight of the knowledge that your mates are still over there, some of them have been injured or even been killed. How was that first few years of transition out of active service for you? Not good. A huge burden on me. It was difficult. Yeah, it got to a point that was just, it was a little bit too much and I just needed to stop. And I was starting to suffer a lot. Initially, uh, I think 2009 was when I first started to suffer the consequences of a lot happening all the time. And I was just, didn't feel well. And, you know, I had a lot of work to do and I didn't have time to not feel well. And you go see the doc and say, hey, this is not working and this is hurting and this is a bit here. I don't know what's going on. And you go, yeah, go see the psych. Psych's like, you're taking two weeks off. And you I can't take two weeks off. Like, literally, I cannot. There's just too much going on. I need to do this. I need to do that. And it's like, that's why you need to take time off. After two weeks, you realize, oh, I feel fantastic. That was the beginning. We tried to manage it because I was discharged in 2013. So we tried to manage it. But I wanted to leave the army and uh, the commanding officer at the time asked me, can you stay because of the work you're doing? And that's when I ended up in the United States with working with the U.S. Special Forces, the different, sorry, Special Operations Group. In the U.S., Special Forces is a Korean parade. So when you say USSF, it's a particular group of people. I did work with them, but I also worked with the SEALs and, and other groups as well. I did a bit of that, and then when I got back, the Americans wanted me to do some more stuff with them, and the CO of the regiment basically, hey, you know, JJ, we can't just keep sending you back to the US or do this, you know, we need you here doing your piece. And then what happened was the US government paid the Australian government for me to go, and they sent me to Okinawa. So they wanted me to see the, the teams in Okinawa in Japan. It was a crazy time. Eventually, the CO left, but he handed over to the new CEO and he wanted me to stay. And they looked after me. I mean, I had a lot of injuries by then. I had a lot of different things and they looked after me, but eventually it was just time. 
And from there, it was a hard time. But then the Australian Institute of Sport asked if I'd be interested in helping them set up a combat sports centre, Olympic combat sports centre, and bring the mindset and spirit to the centre. And I took on that. And that was a very good way for me to transition and put my efforts into something else to keep me busy. We've touched on extensively how testing your martial arts skills, I suppose, in a true real world context, that affected your relationship with the martial arts on the ground and how you approach that training then. How has that experience affected you today and your practice of martial arts? I have a very clear mindset on the requirements, the tactical requirements of martial arts. And tactics are so important. And the tactical elements in modern day martial arts is what's lacking. So whether it be a modern Budo as opposed to an, an old feudal period martial art, and I have studied a couple of the older ones, like Yagushinkage Rune, and they call it, they don't say Bujitsu, they say, or Kenjitsu, they say Heiho, which means martial strategy. And it was very interesting to see the strategy the school would teach. They're basically teaching military strategy, but their version of it. And you realize that's the transition to Budo. So obviously Japan lost World War II and this whole martial military mindset was frowned upon by the US government, obviously, you know. But the Japanese dealt with that by turning their martial arts into Budo, Shin Budo, modern martial way of self-improvement and the benefits of martial arts. So the combat strategy and stuff became something of the past. No one really wanted to pass it on. And it wasn't in context with the new requirements of martial arts. And even the Japanese people were greatly affected by losing the war, which was their first loss that the Japanese had suffered as a country. So it had a huge effect on them. So it's deliberate. Modern martial arts deliberately have sort of left that element out. But I think for me, that's the number one thing that if you're wanting to be tactical and have an outcome on a battlefield, or and whether your battlefield be street self-defense or a commando team in Afghanistan, you have to be tactically sound. And if you're not learning anything about tactics, then, you know, I can sit there and learn all about shooting guns and shoot targets and shoot straight and fast. And if I don't understand how to tactically deploy that weapon, then it doesn't matter. I'm just a target shooter. Like I'm not a tactical shooter no matter how much it looks tactical. So if you look at three-gun shooting in America, I don't know if you've ever seen three-gun shooting, it looks very tactical, but it's a game. It's still a game. You're still shooting targets. They're not shooting back at you. You know how much ammo you've got. You know when you change a weapon has to be. It's a sport, and it's just based on a, a certain element of warfare. And the martial arts are exactly the same. They're a sport or they're a study based on something that they're not now. But it's also interesting to see how, whether it's a good martial artist or a good soldier, can take those skills and under pressure, not just throw the skills back out there, but think tactically, think strategically, and use them creatively, constructively. I saw the Kyokushin 2017 World Tournament in Okinawa, and some of the most impressive fights I saw were the female lightweight division, because they were being very sharp, clever fighters, trying to outmaneuver each other and pick weaknesses and be strategic, whereas in a few of the first rounds of the men's open division, they were just, after the first couple of minutes, they would just start slugging each other as they got tired and just rely on brute strength to outstrengthen the other, whereas the smarter fighters were the ones getting their way through the rounds and rounds. It was really interesting and insightful to watch. I mean, you mentioned Kyokushin, and it's the nature of Kyokushin to be able to take hits. 
So you're a big, strong man and, you know, you develop your ability to take hits. So that's a part of the game and a part of probably might be part of your tactics in having your opponent lose a bit of confidence by the fact that they're not doing a lot of damage. They probably are, but you're not showing it. Again, it's interesting you say that, whereas the, the smaller female fighters just do not have that ability, have never grown up learning that you can take a hit. They would have grown up with fighting with guys and everyone else in the dojo. Are the women who are bigger than them and all of the guys who are stronger than them learning how to actually be tactically sound for that sport and learning how to get out of the way? And I mean, another example of that would be Gary O'Neill in his prime. You're fighting big guys. Like Gary can't stand there and take a thumping. And what's he come out with? You know, some very nice ability to get out of the way and move. And if you've got a big guy that does that, then they just become a dangerous fighter as well. And you see that as well when there's a few of the bigger guys, some of the greatest of all time, but they fight more like a smart tactical fighter. Let's talk about the role of your work today with kinetic fighting and how you're using martial arts to assist ex-soldiers reassimilate into civil society. Well, kinetic fighting, we originally started based on the unarmed combat stuff that we were doing, if you like, or the close quarter fighting stuff. I got asked, can you do that for the infantry corps, what you did for the CQF and, and so on? And I said, yes. And I did that. And I just did it free of charge because big army. A lot of people just think the government has money to, to throw around for certain things. Certain things they do, but they've got to know what it is that they're doing, that they can put money to it. So if it's a new innovation, normally they don't have much money for it. And so, you know, I realise that and I just want to get the thing going. So I'm, I'm like, yeah, look, let's just do it. So I did that for them. But again, it worked out well for me because later on the army decided they wanted everyone doing different levels of this and they called Army Combative Program. It worked out well because we developed it, got it going with the infantry corps. We ended up with the IP and so forth that we shared with the Commonwealth. So a good turn worked out well for us in the end. We got asked, could we run pre-deployment training for um, one div and do sort of like an enhancement, skills enhancement, because guys were doing bodyguard style work without sort of a bodyguard course. Special Forces guys were too busy to show them anything and the military police didn't really want to do that because that was their sort of thing. So they decided, hey, we'll, get a, we'll do a contract solution. And so we got into that and we've done that right up to now. Then we ended up doing driver courses, tactical driver courses. And now we're training with uh, police, South Australian police. Uh, we had to do some stuff with Northern Territory. And now we're running courses because I have a lot of police that want to do the training, but their state won't run the training for them. So we've just learned now that if you run a course, you'll get everyone that wants to do or be exposed to just can come along. And we end up having soldiers, instructors from the army that want to develop their skills and understanding police. And we have a program now that's designed just to give people the tactical understanding of how to apply their martial arts for self-defense. When we're in a particular place, we'll run specialized policing versions of that training, normally on a workday before the weekend courses are on and stuff like that. So it's diversified a lot now. Oh, also, we've moved into um, VR with Kinetic XR, immersed, augmented, and, and virtual reality training. That's quite a long way from the whistles you started training with in your early army days. Yes. Yes, it is. It makes me feel smart. It's good. <laughs> but no, there's a lot of, I've got a couple of very good guys who run that side of the house and do an incredible job. So we've got the whole sort of unarmed combat package being developed in virtual reality so that you can, you know, have these virtual experiences of people coming attacking and, and you having to physically move through the correct shape 
and apply the techniques and so forth. And it will tell you, you know, give you, let you know how you're going and so forth. So basically it's a way to trigger a stimuli. There's noise, there's someone coming at you and it's a way of just doing it in, in the safest way possible, which is to get the brain to think that it's happening without the threat to somebody being injured. So we've got that side of the house. We've got a relationship with one of the major aircraft companies so we're doing some stuff there with their military aircraft and we're now moving into logistics as well because i just see that as a, a smart move in this current environment is to move into the logistics and be able to achieve maintaining logistics if say the virus got worse the coronavirus or a different virus how to maintain logistics supply so just always anything related to military stuff that we think that we can develop a niche, develop a capability that we see may be needed in the future. That's sort of what we do. A very exciting time for me at the moment because I'm seeing a lot of things where they were hidden in the past. So I'm seeing things and I'm seeing a renaissance in a few areas in say karate and, and so on. And I think I can help add value to some areas. So I've got some very good friends in martial arts who are very senior now, a bunch of people who are, you know, eighth dons and so on, who are, I've known for, for decades. I guess I'm able to give them a battlefield insight. One of the things that I'm excited about is um, I train with a Japanese group, uh, Gokushinru, and they have jujitsu techniques from 1580, 1580, somewhere like that. I have to look at it, but it's definitely 16th century. And they're just these drawn pictures, these ground positions, and they, they move through these positions, but they have no place in modern Kodokan Judo or sport Jiu-Jitsu or whatever. And it's like, there they are showing these things. Japan hasn't been to war since World War II. And it's just like, they would say to me, we're not quite sure what this is about. You know, we, this is how this is done and this is how this is done. You've been to war. Can you investigate these techniques? I sort of had an epiphany where I realized we'll staying at the last shogun's house in his country retreat south of Tokyo. Already it's just an amazing experience from the get-go. And I'm sitting there and I just realized, and I said to a friend of mine at the time, you know what, those techniques, and there was a couple of these techniques, if you break the arm, if I put you into a lock and I break your arm, I have to keep control of you. Now, that limb is going to lose that stiffness you realize that if you follow that, what you're seeing with that positions that they have, you're able to trap the arm and you're able to capture them. And they've got techniques where they capture through tying of a rope and so on, just like we do today with placky cuffs. It was so exciting to have Japanese masters ask you to investigate something of their art that's hundreds and hundreds of years old to see if you can make some kind of sense because you've had a battlefield thinking and background. I just find that exciting, a worthwhile challenge. Besides this specific relationship with your martial arts study we've discussed, how do you feel you've grown and changed as a person as a result of your military service? Mm. Well, I sort of think of my military service like the martial arts. It's exactly that, it's service, and you've put everything on the line, mainly because of, I guess, the work we did with kinetic fighting with defence still to this day, that you want the new soldiers to have the best that they possibly can and not learn through the death of their mates the hard lessons that we learn. That's one. I guess there's a sense of pride in who we are and what we've done. People say, you must be proud of what you've done. And it's like, yeah, I'm still doing. Like, 
I don't stop and go, look what I've done. I'm always busy with what's next. That's what I tend to be focused on. And I'm busy because basically for everything that people see me achieve, I've failed a couple of other things. So, so, you know, they think I'm busy, but I'm actually much busier. I'm very busy in failing in some other stuff. And I kind of only really mention my successes because even with that, I'm flat out keeping track of what I am being successful at. And the other thing too is that as you get older and you do more things, you become more successful just because people believe that you can do it. Half the trouble is people just go, oh yeah, I think you could. And they jump on and people support you and all of a sudden it happens. So I'm just enjoying having come out the other side of a lot of experiences and seeing what I can do with that experience now. Okay, you've got that experience. Don't sit back and rest on it. But what can you do now in the future based on those experiences that you probably wouldn't get a chance to do if you didn't have it? So that's, that's what I'm looking at now. We talked at the start that you began martial arts because you were being bullied. But as you said, that quickly goes away, that you don't stay training in martial arts if that's sort of a motivation for you. And so my last military martial arts parallels comparison question for you is talking about channeled, focused, controlled aggression. I've seen in quality martial artists and I've seen in quality soldiers the same qualities in that they're not angry people. They're calm, clear-minded, focused, and can immediately switch it on where necessary. And I think there's a strong parallel there. If you have that quality, what level of soldier, what level of martial artist you can be. And I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I've seen a similar thing. And I think from my experience, maybe... Maybe when people are in a good environment, it's uh, much easier to control the anger, anxiety, what have you, that's the inner battle of your mind, if you like. And to me, that's the biggest thing martial arts does for me now. It's post-battle. It's not pre-battle, getting ready for the fight that may happen and will I be okay? For me, it's everything about the post-battle. How do I calm myself down? How do I use martial arts to settle my spirit and bring me back down to calmness and, and so forth? So maybe I'm using martial arts traditionally, very traditionally in a way that warriors post-battle and post-war career can calm themselves and, and bring themselves some peace mentally. Well, talking with you today, Paul, inspires me to quote Kyokushin Karate one more time. And I know there are other styles that are more prevalent in your practices today. You're so. coming over as someone who does Kyokushin. <laughs> yeah, for 15 years, mate. <laughs> you like Kyokushin. No, that's good. Very it's, good. It's my first uh, martial art, mate, so it's very strong within me. But I was going to quote the opening line of the Dojo Kun, Kyokushin Dojo Kun at you, that we will train our hearts and bodies for a firm, unshaking spirit. And I think you exemplify that greatly in what you preach and what you practice. Us. Thank you very much. Us Shihan. Paul Kale, thank you very much for your time today and for speaking with me. Most welcome. Thank you, Alex. My huge thanks go to Paul for coming on the show. Be sure to look him up on social media. We've interviewed a lot of commandos on this podcast. For the stories of operators from 4 RAR Bracket Commando and the 2nd Commando Regiment, and the doctors, medics, engineers, dog handlers, and signalers attached to them, check out the following episodes. In Season 1, listen to number 10, Eddie Robertson. You have to detach yourself, I guess, from the reality that, you know, there's hot pieces of lead being fired at you and you're in the fight for your life. In Season 2 of the 1st Commando Regiment, number 29, Todd Vale. 
I knew I was in a bad way because I couldn't feel from my waist downwards, I was paralyzed. There was blood. My arm, my right arm, which felt like it was sticking out, was draped over my head and there was blood trickling down into my eyes. The Combat Doctor. Number 31, Dr. Dan Pronk, Volume 1. Certainly I'd been part of medical teams that had lost people in the past, but it was always in a hospital environment, and it still hits home to a degree, but it was just a whole different level when it's someone you know, someone who you've had breakfast with, you know, the day before, and also when you're the one everyone's looking to as the person who's going to save this situation, and and you simply can't. And Volume 2. I knew that at some point I was going to need to deal with all the events that had happened leading up to there. I knew that I would go from that fast-paced life to a much slower-paced life. In Season 2, there's also a very special bonus episode about the late Cameron Baird, VCMG. It's called The Commando's Father with Doug Baird. So the doorbell rang that particular night. Kay answered the door and there was three soldiers there uh, with their hats in their hand and she knew, just like I did, that uh, he'd been killed. And don't miss in season two, number 39, Reese Dowden. That was probably the most hectic time that I've ever been extracted. There was a lot of rounds going off because it was during the day. Obviously, the, the Taliban knew exactly where we were and they knew exactly where the choppers were landing. There was a lot of dust and everyone had to try and find the right chopper. I mean, one guy's radio antenna got shot off. Season 2 bonus episode, Voodoo Medics with Mark Donaldson VC, Dr. Dan Pronk and Kristen Shorten. They quite often dealt with patching up the enemy. They quite often dealt with patching up the civilian population as well. Having this misconception that every veteran, and particularly every combat veteran, is damaged and all of them are coming apart with post-traumatic stress. They've got their mates' lives in their hands. They're also required to fight. They're under a lot of pressure and they carry a lot of responsibility. In Season 3, start with number 44, Mick Bainbridge. You know, I was scared to put my hand up and ask for help. And when I did, I was isolated, immediately told to go home and fuck off because they wanted no one else to get crook. Graham Connolly is a massive figure in the Special Forces community. He gets a lot of references on this show, and with good reason. To find out more about Warrior U Australia himself, check out number 47, Graham Connolly. Well, these guys didn't ask my permission, they just shot him. 1,400 metres, clean kill, and the bomb stopped. For a veteran of the Special Operations Engineer Regiment, who went outside the wire with commandos to defuse IEDs on patrols and more, listen to number 49, Nathan Bolton. Boom vehicle hit an IED that we'd missed. The last anyone ever saw me was engulfed in a flying fireball. For the story of an explosive detection dog handler of the Special Operations Engineer Regiment who served alongside commando operators, check out number 51, Mark Noble. You feel more at home over there than you do here. There you're doing your job, you're, you're trained to do it, you're doing it every day. You come back here and you sort of feel like you're sitting in limbo. You just want to get back over and keep doing what you're there to do. Also in Season 3, the commando known as H, number 54, H, Volume 1. It's, we're going through that door, or we're sliding down that rope, or we're blowing this, or we're diving in here, or flying in there, or whatever, and this is it. It doesn't matter how many of us come out. Volume 2. Only seconds ago, braced yourself mentally that, you know, you're about to die. You've accepted that. And Volume 3. There's nothing else in this world ever that will replace when you live and breathe inside a special operations team. There's nothing. And of the four RAR era, before he went over to the SAS, there's also number 60, Nick Caldwell. But if you're there because you want to fight war at the tip of the spear and you want to be thrown into the hardest, most arduous tasks possible, then you're in the unit for the right reasons. 
and this year in season four. Check out number 77, Adrian Humphreys, volume one. Still thought, oh fuck, I've been shot. Can't do my job. I really hope I'm not paralyzed. I'm still alive. All these little very clear moments of clarity that you have in your head. And volume two. The body bags, they're on the stretchers being extracted up to this helicopter. Looking at the bags, they'd obviously been crushed underneath the aircraft. He's back. Number 54, H volume four. You got fucking hours and your whole call sign's gonna be dead. So you either get someone in here or get us out of here. And volume five. But the suffering and the extent of injuries that the remainder of the boys had that lived in that crash, it was just fucking horrific. For a combat medic story, number 87, Jeremy Holder. I just got up and started running towards the casualties. There was rounds hitting in the dirt next to me from a machine gun. There's also number 92, Dean Parkinson, volume one. So it's dark time now. Then the Apache, we hear over the radio, the Apache comes and goes, we've got other targets. I'm not privy to everything that was going on right then, but I know Bairdy got straight under the blower and went, no, nah, no, nah, they're lighting us up. And volume two. We got hit from four sides all at once. Deafening. Mosul with Ben McKelvey. The Inspector General's report into war crimes was starting to spool up then in 2014. The guys were sort of wondering what they were going to do for the rest of their lives. And still to come this season, join us for number 100, Gary Wilson. In the three months, I'd lost half my body weight. I was below 50 kilos and with this nurse put me back in bed. Jess, Miss Wilson, you're in a helicopter crash. And also join us for our last Partners episode for this year with Gary's wife, Renee Wilson. Then the Padre got out of the car and he introduced himself as the Padre. And I looked at him and I remember thinking, well, I'm fucked. That's it. They don't bring a Padre to tell you that someone's hurt themselves. This is serious. Follow us on social media and subscribe in your podcast app to never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this epic chat with Paul Kale, rate us five stars in Apple Podcasts. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>